Good morning. Uh, my name is Mac Harris. I work in the youth group here at Hope, and uh, thanks for letting me be here with y'all this morning, um, especially if you're new. Thanks for, thanks for showing up, um, coming to a new place. Last week, we started a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, which was the first written biography about the life of Jesus Christ. And more than just telling us a lot about who Jesus was, a lot about Jesus, this book of the Bible gives us a a fast-moving and behind-the-scenes picture into the who Jesus really was. Not just about Jesus, not just what He taught, but what He said and what He did and what He felt. Last week, we talked about Uh, The beginning of Mark chapter 1, where John the Baptist begins his ministry, but he was never meant to be the star of the show. He was paving the way for someone coming after him. And even though people were flocking to John as he preached and baptized in the desert, someone greater was coming after him. Someone who wouldn't just baptize with water, but who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's where we begin our passage this morning, in verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan." And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I I know that many of us are coming in here with heavy hearts or tired hearts, scattered hearts. And I pray that no matter where we are, that you would just draw near to us. That we would leave here not just with more understanding about this story, but uh, that you would melt our hearts with your love for us. That we would see you as more believable and more beautiful than we did before. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I remember the moment well. The the normally blinding fluorescent lights had been replaced by darkness, broken up only by the spinning disco ball hanging from the rafters. The dusty gym floor had been swept clean, but the faint smell of sweat still hung in the air. Decorations had been draped over the scoreboard and strung across the basketball goals as early 2000s pop music was blaring through speakers that should have been replaced 20 years ago. As Flo Rida and T-Pain entered my life for the first time, I found myself asking the question that every middle, eight, every middle school boy has asked, what are apple bottom jeans? Well, earlier in the day, a group of eager parents had pushed the bleachers up against the walls, and those were the only things keeping me and my crew a group of about five or six petrified middle school boys from literally touching the wall with both hands. On one side, we stood, holding little plastic cups filled with goldfish and pretzels, afraid to even glance across the barren desert of a basketball court-torned dance floor, because hugging the wall on the other side of the room and clumped together in little groups as well, every girl in the grade stood waiting expectantly for that first boy to come over and ask for a dance. Now, I've gotten to work in youth ministry for a couple years now, and I've met a lot of middle schoolers who are a lot braver than I was in middle school, and so maybe your middle school dance experience, that first one, maybe it wasn't so haunting. But if there's anything that I learned and still remember about that fateful night, 
is that even the word dance stirs up a little anxiety in me that is just never going to go away. And so as we look in our bulletin today and see that point number one includes that fateful D word, dance, know that I don't use it lightly. And if we look in our passage this morning in Mark chapter, nine, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, you're probably wondering, like most people, what in the world does the baptism of Jesus have to do with an irreverent middle school dance? And that's a great question. You're listening already. Good job. So last week, we talked about the beginning of uh, John the Baptist's ministry, paving the way for Jesus to come. And now, as Mark introduces Jesus for the first time, he begins with so little fanfare. Every other gospel writer begins with a a birth narrative or a, a genealogy or even just a famous introduction to Jesus, but Mark begins suddenly. He just says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's it, right? Mark presents the shortest and the fastest paced account of Jesus' life, and so Whenever he does add details, we have to ask, okay, why did Mark think this was important? And because we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write this in the first place, we have to ask, okay, what about this did God think was so important to include? Verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. More than anything else, I think these first few verses um, reveal that Jesus' baptism is a Trinitarian affair. And I know that as soon as I say the word Trinity, there might be a little glaze starting to form over your eyes, and admittedly, that's okay, because the, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God who exists eternally in three persons, is a profound mystery, and there's some level that we have to acknowledge that we're never going to fully be able to grasp that while we're on earth. But in this scene, we see Jesus. We see the Son of God in the flesh. We see the Holy Spirit physically descending on him like a dove, and we hear the Father booming his pleasure over his beloved Son. Three distinct persons, but one essence. We don't worship three gods, but one God who exists in three persons. And we'll get to why this matters so much in just a second, but I don't want to miss what Mark is setting us up for here. More than just saying, and then Jesus got baptized and then went on and did a lot of cool ministry things, Mark is specifically drawing our attention to the inauguration of this incredible historical moment, the significance of what is going on. Today we might be used to hearing things like the Holy Spirit being described like a dove, right? We might see stained glass windows or or things like that, but that's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the same image. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove, but for the original audience that Mark was writing to, this wouldn't have been a familiar picture. In fact, there was only one other um, piece in in the Old Testament that they would have connected this to, and that is to Genesis chapter 1. And because when, when the Jewish rabbis translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic into the language that the common people spoke at the time of Jesus, they made an interesting translation decision when they translated Genesis chapter 1. They said this, they said, and the, world, and the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered, same word, above the face of the, earth, of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. In our English translations, we won't see this phrase, like a dove, 
because this is an added description that they added uh, to clarify what the Spirit might have been like. And so Mark is pointing back to this and saying, hey, remember this creation event when the God the Father was speaking things into existence, when the Holy Spirit was hovering and fluttering like a dove? Something so similar is happening right here in the baptism of Jesus. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption of the world, the rescue and redemption of all things that is beginning now with the arrival of the king is also a project of the triune God. So why does it matter? What is Mark doing here? Why is this so important for us today to, cre- to connect the baptism to the creation And to quote Keller again, he says, this is what has been happening in the interior life of the Trinity from all eternity. That Mark is giving us a glimpse into the very heart of reality, the meaning of life, the essence of the universe. That nothing is more fundamental to reality than the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit glorifying one another in self-giving love. This has literally been happening since the beginning of history and will continue long after for all eternity. And for us today, the Trinity is so essential because if God did not exist in three persons, then love would not be an essential part of who He is. Right? If God didn't exist in three persons, then He couldn't have been able to love anything before He created anything. So His creation would be dependent, He would be dependent upon creation to love us in the first place. A unipersonal God is inherently self-centered and self-serving. But because God exists in three persons, we can say with John, who is called the beloved disciple, that God is love. And he doesn't need anyone or anything else to love because he already fundamentally is love. He already is perfectly perfectly loving, given and received within the Trinity. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He says that when, what Christians mean by the statement, God is love, is that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. This, finally, is the dance the beautiful choreography, the push and the pull between the members of the Trinity and perfect love and harmony with one another. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit from eternity past to eternity present, self-giving, other-glorifying one another. And this picture we see in the baptism of Jesus is just a snapshot of what is always going on behind the curtain. This, this relationship between the Trinity is so fundamental to reality, and Mark is, is saying that this is just a picture of what is already happening and a picture of what we will see perfectly one day. That the God of the Bible, the God in three persons in creation, the God in three persons at this baptism, is pure, unadulterated love. And that might be very theological. That might be uh, a good seminary lecture but what does this have to do with us today? I think the answer to that question lies in the answer to another question, which is, why did Jesus have to get baptized in the first place? 
Last week, when John was introducing his ministry, he said that his baptism was of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But if Jesus is the only perfect human who ever walked the earth, then why does he need to be baptized? Why does he need this baptism of repentance and forgiveness? Well, commentators across the board all say that he didn't physically need it himself, but he did it and he needed it to identify with us as sinners. He did it so he could be nearer to us, so he could understand what it was like to be us. That Jesus is a friend of sinners and he is near to the guilty. He comes near to us so that we can be near to him. This is an idea that theologians call our union with Christ, and this is something that Paul talks a lot about in Romans chapter 6 when he says that our baptism is a sign and a seal of being united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and in his new life. But even more than this big picture, grand scheme union, our union with Christ means that the words the Father speaks over the Son here, when he says, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased, those are the same words that he speaks over each and every one of us who is in Christ. And because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, we can enjoy new life and a new family membership and a new Father who is gladly saying these words over you every single day. And for some of you in this room, you may currently enjoy, you may have enjoyed a relationship with your earthly dad where this makes a lot of sense, where you got to glimpse what it was like to be loved just for who you are and not for what you do. So this may feel familiar, even if it was just a taste. And even if your dad did let you down, inevitably, this may be familiar and comforting. But for a lot of us in this room, the reality of God as Father may not be as familiar and it may not be as comforting. Because for a whole host of reasons, our earthly dads are going to let us down. And as the pastors were talking about this passage this week, it turned into a really heavy conversation as we were reflecting on the different ways that our dads, both intentionally and unintentionally, have left deep wounds that can still hurt so badly today. I think I've talked about this before, but um, when I was 13, my dad passed away, and I turned 26 this year, which means that in just a couple of months, uh, I will have lived the majority of my life without my dad than with him. I think for most of my high school and college years, I wanted to believe that him dying wasn't going to have that much an effect on me. I thought that I wanted to be strong and tough and emotionally uh, stoic, and that that's what it meant to not be phased by his death. That's what I wanted. And for a long time, people asked me some version of the question of, um, hey, Mac, how did this big event with your own dad How did him dying affect your relationship with God? And it's a great question. I think it's a question we should all ask ourselves. How does our relationship with God affect, how does our relationship with our earthly dad affect our relationship with God? Maybe that's good homework for lunch later today. But I would always answer this question the same way. I would say, well, because my dad is no longer here, it's comforting to me that God is always going to be there and he's never going to leave me. And that's true, But I also think I was always taking the easy way out because I was kind of afraid of what was actually underneath the surface there. I love my dad and I I miss him so much, but I don't remember him saying these words to me. 
in this past spring on the, on the men's retreat, I remember the, the speaker shared a story about him losing his own son when his son was three, and then Gordon got up and talked about a relationship between a father and a son and that grief, and I got, by the time we got to our small groups, I was just weeping, and for like 20 minutes, I couldn't get out straight words, but it was just, I mean, 13 years, 26 years of, of my relationship with and without my dad just coming out. And I began to realize that all my memories that I have with my dad were either negative things, remembering the, the hard and the, and the worst, or things that were tied to performance and things that we did together. Him praising me for doing well on a math test or for doing well on a baseball game, learning how to play golf. And I remember things about him, his, his brilliance and his sense of humor and his love for Alabama football and greasy food. And I know that I was his beloved son. Deep down, I know that, but it hurts me so bad that I can't remember this. And I feel like I'm dishonoring his memory by not remembering the ways that he did love me well. And so all week I've been reading this passage and wrestling with this because all I want is to be able to hear that from my dad. And all I want is to be able to hear this even more from God himself. But it's hard for me to believe it because I don't really remember what it's like to be loved just for who I am and not because of something that I have done. I want to believe that the triune God loves me as his son. But it's so hard for me to actually accept that. And for all of us here today, no matter what we have received or haven't received from our fathers, no matter what we long to hear from them, whether it's respect or attention or affirmation and love, hear God saying this over you, that I am here, that I love you, I adore you as my beloved son, my beloved daughter. That's how he feels about you. Even when you can't feel it about yourself, that is what is more true. That the same love the Father has for the Son, that He's had for all eternity, that is the same love He has for you and for me. And what we see here in Jesus' baptism and in our own is an invitation into this divine dance of love, into this family relationship. And when Mark says that heaven was torn open, he uses a word that he only uses one other time as Jesus is breathing his last breath as he hangs on a cross. I think I put the wrong quote up there, but in Mark chapter 15, we read this, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This tearing of heaven at his baptism and this tearing of the temple at his execution bookend the ministry of Jesus to show that his heart is and always has been for us. His whole ministry is about getting closer to us, ripping through every barrier and doing whatever it takes to get to you. So that's our first point. It's a long point that the triune God wants to dance with you. He wants intimacy and relationship with you. This is what you were made for, is to dance with the divine. But now we have a, a baptized Jesus, anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by the Father, and now we expect that Jesus is ready to go off and do big ministry things, right? If, if we were writing the story, Jesus would immediately go out and preach. He would go perform miracles and 
do awesome ministry things, but it's actually the exact opposite. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all connect the baptism and the temptation, and every single time, Jesus is sent immediately to the wilderness right after he's baptized. Mark says this, he says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's not just that Jesus went out into the wilderness voluntarily, which he did, but the Spirit is the one who actually drives him out there, that pushes him into the desert for 40 long days. His ministry doesn't begin with a bang, but with a battle. And even though Mark's account of the temptation is relatively brief compared to the other Gospels, it's chock full of all this symbolism and important things for us. Right? The number 40 is so often associated with hardship and suffering in the Bible. And Noah and his family, they, they pass through waters too. Not through the waters of baptism, but the waters of God's judgment for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses and Elijah and all these prophets had 40 days where they would fast for Israel. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the desert. And now Jesus entered his own 40-day trial, locked in physical fasting, and spiritual warfare with Satan. And while the other Gospels go into the details of the temptation more, Mark continues to emphasize the connection between this event and creation. Right after creating the heavens and the earth, and ushering in the beginning of human history, we find Adam and Eve in an intimate relationship, walking in the garden with God. At his birth and baptism, Jesus ushers, ushers in a new stage of redemptive history, and he enters into the wilderness anointed freshly by the Holy Spirit. But in both cases, Satan immediately swoops in to steal the show. He swoops in to try and tempt humanity and win the day. And in, in Matthew chapter 4, we see that Satan's attempts to tempt Jesus closely mirror the attempts to, uh, to, that he made to tempt Adam, um, but we're not going to get there today. On the other hand, there are some important differences, right? Adam was in a garden, and Jesus is in the wilderness. Adam is naming the animals in peace, but Jesus is surrounded by wild animals out for blood. And Adam can eat anything he wants except for one tree, and Jesus can't eat anything at all. So the point is that Adam had every advantage and he failed. And Jesus had every disadvantage, but he perfectly obeyed. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, but that he did not sin. And here in Romans 5, Paul gives us even greater news. He says, For if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Adam there was death, I'm sorry, y'all. I don't know what's going on. But in Jesus, there is new life. 
death reigned in Adam, but in Jesus, grace, righteousness are abounding. That is now what reigns. As Christians, we we tend to do a good job of emphasizing the cross. We preach the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, salvifically atoning for our sins on the cross. And in some ways, we can't emphasize that enough. That is the greatest thing that has happened in human history. But we shouldn't ignore the importance of the active obedience of Jesus. This is what makes him able to be our perfect sacrifice. Physically, he was starving, he was thirsty, he was weak. Spiritually, he was at war with Satan himself. Remember, this is the Son of God who has enjoyed the the pleasures and the joys of heaven, of relationship with his Father and with all the saints for all of eternity. And now, all of a sudden, he has come down to this rock, and he's in a desert, and he's being tempted like never before. That, that, That is unbelievable to think about, but he did it so that he could be near to us, so that he could be our substitute. And all of this can be true. All of this is true, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it makes a difference. Right? Sometimes if we find ourselves stuck in the wilderness too. Sometimes we're at the end of our rope, suffering, tempted, despairing, defeated, but when we are in this valley of the shadow of death, and it's a when, not an if, when our hearts are breaking for friends and loved ones, when we feel the weight of doubts and unanswered prayers starting to mount, we find a Jesus who is near to us, a Jesus who can sympathize with us, and one who loves us even more desperately. But I want to leave us with a couple of practical handholds to cling on to as we, as we leave our passage this morning. Firstly, I think there's an order of operations that is so vital. Right? The baptism and the temptation are always back-to-back, but they always happen in that order. Jesus was the, the perfect, sinless Son of God. If there was ever anyone who didn't need to be reminded of how much God loved him, it would have been him. If there was ever anyone who didn't need to be reminded of his identity, it would have been him. But this is who God is. This is his, his heart for all of us, is to pour out, to shower us with his affection and his love. Before we ever do anything at all, before Jesus enters into his ministry or, or does anything in, into the temptation, God wants to shower him with affection. Brian Chappell is a, is a pastor, and he calls this the distinction between our who and our do. He says who we are, our identity in Christ always comes before anything we do. He says that God's grace motivates our behavior. Our behavior does not manufacture his grace. We live in response to his love, not to qualify for it or make him produce it. Our obedience is a prayer of thanksgiving, not a bribe for blessings. What we do must not determine who we are, but who we are by God's grace should determine what we do. As it was for Jesus, so it is for us. God's pleasure isn't determined by how well we perform or how much we obey when we are in the desert ourselves. He's just pleased with who you are and who you are in Jesus. He loves you because you are already his beloved, even when you don't feel very lovely yourself. 
Secondly, we can remember that Jesus does not go into the wilderness by accident, and he does not go in alone. There's a direct connection between baptism and battle, between the Christian life and suffering. That Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and in that same Spirit sends him immediately into the wilderness. And for 40 days, the Son of God probably felt a little bit alone. He had nobody else around him, but the Spirit of God was upon him. We see that the angels were ministering to him, and so often when we pray in the midst of the wilderness, we pray, God, remove this temptation, remove this suffering. We want angels to be near to us, but that's not what the angels do at all. They, They let Jesus be tempted, but they minister to him. They remind him of who he is. They remind him of the Father's love. As one of the pastors at Hope put it this week, he said that Jesus was not abandoned into the wilderness, but he was trusted with it. And for us, we we rarely know why God chooses to use those wilderness seasons or months or years. But they're not an abandonment and they're never an accident. Because Satan didn't just tempt Jesus here in the wilderness. He didn't just tempt him for his whole life. But more than any other time, he tempted him right before his death. Like Adam, Jesus eventually found himself in a garden, this one called Gethsemane instead of Eden, and he also faced a temptation about another tree. And this tree, rather than promising life and freedom from God, this tree that Jesus was tempted with promised death. It was a more excruciating temptation than anyone had ever known, and yet sweating drops of blood, Jesus willingly walked towards that cross. He let himself be mocked and tortured and killed on a tree so that you and I could live. He succeeded where Adam failed. And he took that ultimate step towards you and me across the dance floor to show us that he wants to dance with us and isn't waiting for us to come to him. Eugene Peterson describes it like this. He says, The Trinity is a steady call, an invitation to participate in the energetically active life of God. The image of the dance again. It is the participation in the Trinity, God as he has revealed himself to us, that makes things and people particularly and distinctively who they are. We are not spectators to God, but there, has always, there is always a hand reaching out to pull us into the Trinitarian actions of holy creation, holy salvation, and holy community. Our God is a God who won't leave us alone. He's reaching, he's walking across the dance floor to be with you. If he can be desperate for anything, then he is desperate to draw you into this dance and draw you into his love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that uh, these words would not fall uh, away in vain, but that you would use them and... uh, yeah, saturate our hearts. Help us to know and to trust, not just in our heads that you love us, but to experience and know that in our hearts. I pray that that would change us and that we would live out of our adoption and live out of our sonship and daughtership, um, which is truly the greatest promise that we can ever receive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.